Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati, your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Jordan Bonomo. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Dr. Odeye, this is amazing. Um, I'm excited about the opportunity to get to talk to you about this stuff. Um, I mean, the truth is you're one of the elder statesmen of stroke now in this country. I don't right? know about elder. I, I do. I, I reject elder. I, you trained me. You're, you're older. You're old. I'm catching up, though. But the, the truth is you've had this extensive career in stroke research, and you probably understand these data better than many of us ever will. And as importantly, you have an eye to the history of it that a lot of us don't have to, based on the work that you've done and your contact with those who did the seminal work that we all review now. I really wanted the chance to ask you, in maybe a bit more of an informal way than you've had an opportunity to talk about this in the past through lectures and symposia, about the original NINS trial. Mm-hmm. This trial that still vexes a lot of us in emergency medicine. It's a complex trial. Sometimes it's, it's hard to really understand what the data mean, especially if you don't have a, your own statistical degree. And there's a lot of noise out there. People um, are are pretty powerfully aligned one way or the other with the trial. But without getting into the stats up front, let's do two things. First, tell me who you are. So all the people who are listening who don't know you, who are you and what do you do? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Okay. Okwe Adeoye at the University of Cincinnati. I am vice chair for research at UC. I uh, primarily do acute stroke research, namely acute stroke interventions and clinical trials. I am the ER doc that is adding integralin uh, or eftephibatide to TPA to see whether or not we can do better than we currently do. The trial that I'm leading right now is called MOST, the multi-arm optimization of stroke thrombolysis, where we are testing eftephibatide or agatroban versus placebo uh, in uh, ischemic stroke patients treated within three hours of symptom onset. Rumor has it that's a pretty big trial in emergency medicine. It is, yes. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. It's, uh, I'm excited to be a part of it and work for you, as usual. <laughs> so, if you're doing a trial about optimization of fibrinolytic therapy, one must make the assumption that you believe somewhere in your heart of hearts that fibrinolytic therapy matters in acute stroke patients and that it may help rather than hurt them. I do. All right. A lot of the data that we have today is predicated on the original NINS trial, right? The subsequent trials, the international trials, even the interventional trials, everybody looked to the NINS trial for data. There is no trial that's been published around TPA in the last 20 years. It hasn't included a reference to the NINS trial. But there's some stuff in the NINS trial that's interesting that is maybe not how we might design a clinical trial today. Mm-hmm. What's missing from the NINS trial in your mind? When you look back at the trial design, when you think about what they knew at that time as they were designing an acute stroke trial, what's missing from that trial? How might we we design it differently today? Wow, that's a big question. Um, And it's a big question that's uh, clouded, of course, by uh, a lot of the discourse on on the trial over the past uh, 25 years. So honestly, it is tough for me to say what it is that was missing in that trial. I think some some clarity and some crispness of uh, the endpoints, for example. So the notion of a global statistic comprised of four different uh, potential endpoints, that's been controversial. 
However, I think we need to keep in mind that going back to going back to 1995 when the trial was published, and certainly the five to seven years of work uh, before that uh, leading to the trial uh, being conducted, I, I think it's important to realize that today we all say modified ranking, we all say little or no disability, we all say uh, independence reflexively as though that those were uh, endpoints that were clear. And my point on that is when this trial was being designed and when this trial was conducted, it wasn't as clear as we talk about it now. And so there were multiple endpoints that were chosen to reflect the best knowledge at the time so as not to miss a potential endpoint. And so a, a global uh, statistic was used, which people have, have quibbled with, and now we use modified rankings. And so maybe if we just said, um, a modified ranking back then, this wouldn't be uh, this difficult to, to navigate. Overall, clinical trials are, are, are messy endeavors, um, as I am experiencing uh, sort of acutely and day-to-day -day right now. Uh, the ability to sort of uniformly do something across multiple hospitals and make sure that everybody's doing it the way you want it done is really challenging. Yeah. And so, Overall, I would say those are the two things that I, I think uh, retrospectively now, it makes sense to me why some perceive the trial as messy. And on the other hand, it makes sense to me why the endpoints uh, that were selected um, uh, reflected the best knowledge of the time. Right. So if I'm hearing you right, modified rank and scoring as an endpoint for a trial wasn't the common language of the time. Um, and it has clearly become so. Most of us know those data around our clinical trials pretty well. So that sounds like a challenge, but they also did some stuff that was right. Mm -hmm. The NINS trial was, was pretty exceptional in its ability to do what it did, getting people treated as early as they did inside a clinical trial was fascinating. What, what, from a design standpoint, do you think they got really right about that trial? So the main thing, and this was reflected in the pilot studies and then the NINDS trial uh, itself, and the main thing is time to treatment. The main thing is getting patients treated quickly. So the pilot study, uh, had patients treated within 90 minutes. The dose range in studies had patients treated in the 0 to 90 and the 90 to 180 uh, time frame. And so that part I thought was brilliant. Um, I think in today's parlance, we say time critical diagnosis. And what I would ask of any ER doc listening is if I did a sepsis trial and I said, why don't you uh, hold off on your IV fluids for six hours? versus um, uh, start your IV fluids once you establish that the patient is uh, hypotensive and in fact in need of resuscitation. Can't do it. Can't do it. Why not? Not allowed. <laughs> not practice. <laughs> right? And so the notion of time-critical diagnosis, mm -hmm. the notion of a STEMI and the need to attend to that STEMI quickly, the notion of a septic patient and the need to attend to that patient quickly, I think is intuitive. And I think every single article that I've seen written that has lumped together all of the TPA trials and said, look, it all came out neutral, doesn't actually account for that time-critical nature of the disease. If I did a cardiac arrest trial and I said, why don't you wait on CPR for a little bit and see how that goes and then start CPR. And so yeah. if we believe that there's actually increased brain damage with longer time from uh, onset of the stroke, then it's hard for me to accept that, oh yeah, well, we don't accept that earlier reperfusion um, 
would result in improved outcomes. And so that's my that's where I'm coming from. I think that's insightful. And many of us have grown up with the NINS trial being not only modified rank and scoring as common language for outcomes, but the law of the land. Patients with acute ischemic strokes get treated with fibrinolytic therapy because the data says we ought to. But prior to 1995, what was the fibrinolytic therapy again? What was the reperfusion therapy that they were comparing it against? Because there wasn't much, right? The landscape was pretty barren. Streptokinase, urokinase. Yeah. How'd those guys do? Uh, they did not do very well. But there's actually, there's a, uh, if you go back, and it's interesting. Like I do want to acknowledge, though, that for, to put it in context, with all those trials sort of coming up negative, um, and then the NINDS trial being published in 95, and I believe ECAS 2 was published uh, in late 95 versus mid 95 for the NINDS trial. ECAS 2 was a six hour trial, and that was also negative. Um, and so I think to put it in context, the person on the street who's not thinking of the nuance of, you know, this time versus that time, and simply looking at TP here, here negative, TP here positive, it's not unreasonable to say, what's different about that, about these two trials? Why, you know, the, why is this one positive? Why is this one negative? Um, and then we have three negatives or four negatives, wherever you draw the line in the sand, why are all these negative and then you're gonna believe this one positive? I think that's fair. Mm -hmm. What's not fair is to say time doesn't matter. That mm -hmm. just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It doesn't seem to in most disease states. I don't know why stroke Correct. would be particularly different. Correct. Let me follow up with one last question about stroke trial design, because I think it's interesting. And one of the things that's always fascinated me about the NINDS trial was both the 24-hour and the 90-day endpoint. Mm -hmm. I recognize the 90-day endpoint uh, with stroke rehabilitation and the, the need for time from initial insult, everything from your secondary inflammatory pathways to edema need to resolve. How do you feel as a clinical trialist now about a 24-hour endpoint in a stroke trial? Do you have one in your current trial? So we need to not confound um, a surrogate marker with a primary endpoint. Um, and I think uh, the part one of the NINDS trial that was designed with a 24-hour NIH stroke scale uh, improvement or resolution of symptoms did confound a surrogate marker with a primary functional outcome endpoint, right? So if I get better within 24 hours and I am walking around in the ICU, I am likely to be fine at 90 days. But not being back to myself at 24 hours doesn't mean I'm not going to be better in 90 days, right? And so I, that's another point that actually relates back to your original question about um, what perhaps led to some of the confusion about, about the trial. I think that surrogate marker of a primary functional outcome endpoint led to some confusion. So if you harp on, well, it was negative at 24 hours, mm -hmm. well, that's that's just, that's just, it, it's, if people are doing well at 24 hours, they're gonna do well later on. But because they're not doing well at 24 hours, doesn't mean there's not incremental gain and opportunity for improvement, especially if I reperfuse. And if I reperfuse and I have, we know that there's reperfusion injury, all right, we know that there's ischemic pre-per conditioning. We talk about all those things, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And so if we if there's some reperfusion injury and I'm sort of recovering from my reperfusion injury, therefore I'm not awake, but I uh, do fully recover from that and then I'm awake in, in a week and I'm awake in two weeks. That 24-hour endpoint is a surrogate marker. That should not be confused for a functional outcome endpoint. I love it. That's great. That's a great explanation. I think a lot of people listening, that may be the first time they've heard that. And I appreciate the way you eloquently described it. Let me ask you one last question. Being who you are with the 
perspective you have standing on the mountain looking around at the stroke <laughs> landscape around you. Is that you. what I'm doing? I think so. What, what's coming down the pike? What does stroke care look like in 15 years? Do you have oh. any ideas? So I think everybody, the, 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 obviously the first thing I should talk about is most in the trial that I'm doing and the adjunctive treatments uh, to uh, fibrinolysis thrombolysis, which is uh, currently we're testing, we're testing uh, um, eptifibatide and agatroban. Uh, but there may be novel um, adjunctive uh, therapies coming down the pli uh, pike, uh, glycoprotein 1B inhibitors, glycoprotein 6 inhibitors, that may augment the performance of uh, fibrinolysis uh, over time. And certainly, Tenecteplase is getting a lot of traction lately. Um, there are ongoing trials uh, with Tenecteplase as a convenience to the single bolus, as opposed to the bolus followed by an hour infusion. And so if the safety profile is the same, if the efficacy profile is the same, uh, there's a chance that in the coming uh, 20, 25, 20, uh, however, whatever year, there's a, there's a likelihood that we may drift towards tenecteplase as the primary fibrinolytic of choice. And beyond that then would be sort of these adjunctive therapies. Oh boy, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. I learned a bunch. I'm sure the people who are listening learned a bunch. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, MCRAIG International, and MedEd On The Go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com. <laughs>